Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. June is drawing to a close. And as we get ready to flip over the page of the calendar to the month of July, the month of patriotic festivities, pool parties, campground visits, water park trips, we start feeling a little bit of an impending reality. And that reality is we're at the midpoint of the summer. Now, That's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a good thing because it's just the midpoint. We still have, you know, another half of the summer to enjoy. But the other side of that coin is we're running out of time. And there's probably still some things we have on our summer to-do list that we want to get done. And also, if you're a hunter, you got some hunting to-do list things that you got to check off for your your summer preparation. So make sure that uh, you plan accordingly. Now, one of those things that we really have to take seriously is if you're a bow hunter, you got to be thinking about what you need to do to get all of your archery equipment set up and ready to go so that when the season rolls around, that is not a question mark that you're having to deal with while you're sitting out there hoping to tag a delicious buck. Now, Along the lines of archery, our guest on this episode, episode number five dozen, the big 60, episode 60 already. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, is Mr. John Lusk of Lusk Archery Adventures, a popular YouTube channel that features both gear tests and a lot of hunting content that will keep you entertained for quite some time. So view with caution because you'll probably get stuck there for a while watching because what John has is uh, really good and compelling content that you'll, I'm confident you will enjoy. But John comes on and he talks to us a little bit about what he does with his gear tests, but also what he's done with his hunting experiences. And I think you're going to enjoy it. So use what you hear today. Help get yourself ironed out for the coming deer season. That's not that far away anymore. And uh, think happy thoughts. You know, the good thing about the end of summer is the beginning of hunting season. So keep that in mind too as you hit this midpoint in the summer and as you tune into episode number 60 of the First Gen Hunter podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Undiscovered vocal talents, life hacks, new revolutionary home improvement products, and gear tests. What do all of these things have in common? They all account for some of the most addictive, binge-worthy video content on the internet. And our guest tonight, Mr. John Lusk of Lusk Archery Adventures, runs a popular archery gear testing channel on YouTube, and it fits right in with all those other things that I just mentioned. How does it make you feel, John? I like you as much as I like 
random New York City guy blows crowd away with his amazing vocal talents. You know, I, I like watching your videos as much as I like watching those. Hey, that makes me feel good. I'm glad somebody likes to watch them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's something satisfying about looking at something and uh, saying, hey, what can that thing actually hold up to? Or what would happen if, you know, I accidentally uh, shot a tree with my broadhead or, you know, shot a steel plate with my broadhead? <laughs> and it's it's fun. <laughs> it's fun to be able to have those questions answered. Yeah, that's right. I love that. I uh, I used to love Mythbusters, you know, and seeing things like that kind of played out. And I'm an engineer. I got a degree in civil engineering. So I like to think analytically and kind of what if and how does this work? How does that work? Yeah. So that's right up my alley to do this testing. That's a good that's a good thing to compare it to, Mythbusters. And and man, they were on TV for so long. And I think it probably <laughs> was because that was right before YouTube started to kind of uh I don't know. I don't know if YouTube is dominating what people are consuming visually yet, but uh, it's getting pretty close. And it was uh, kind of before uh, all these types of uh, channels existed. And so you guys are, are, you and all the other gear testers out there are filling an important need that uh, <laughs> the public has, which is to satisfy that very uh, itch, that that control variable and uh you know result situation that we're all looking for so uh and and as a science teacher i should mention this i actually considered um when uh illustrating um that you know basic principle of science how to set up a scientific experiment i thought about uh showing some of your videos in class because <laughs> you do such a nice job isolating variables and uh and uh, collecting data and and uh you know trying trying uh to add different little wrinkles to your experiment to really uh nail down what it is you're trying to demonstrate and so uh, really all of it is just a scientific test and so um I really enjoy watching that, and I'm really thankful that you were willing to carve out some time from your busy night. You know, you know how all this uh, content creating schedule <laughs> goes, and uh, there's a lot of late nights and working after work and and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you being willing to come on the show. Oh well, thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here with you. I really appreciate that. You know, before the show, we were talking a little bit, and. Um, I'm actually quite excited to to hear your story on this because your hunting experience is so diverse. And if anybody goes to John's YouTube channel, which we'll uh, tell you how to find that here for sure. And of course, uh, you'll find that link in the show notes as always. Um, but when you look through all of John's stuff, I mean, you really don't have to <laughs> go much further from, than from the introductory video to see that you have some quite diverse hunting experience. And uh, it's just really impressive. And, and seemingly all with a bow. Do you do any gun hunting anymore, John? Um, you know, I don't. I have a bunch of rifles. Uh, matter of fact, I went on a hog hunt a few days ago and loaned a rifle to one of my buddies. Had to, you know, get it sighted in for him and stuff. I got a bunch of pistols and rifles, but I haven't used those on a hunt for years and years. I, you know, You know how it happened is, it was, uh, I was in Missouri. This is, I don't know, umpteen years ago, many years ago. And I usually use a bow even during gun season. You could do that in Missouri. You can't do that here in Iowa. 
But I was, um, my buddy invited me to go hunting on his dad's property. And it was during gun season, but I thought maybe I should take my bow. And I thought, nah, I'll just take my seven mag. So I had my seven, you know, millimeter Remington Magnum and this nice buck walked out at 11 yards. Oh, <laughs> I, man. My, scope, my scope was set on nine power. Oh. <laughs> I just saw a brown and shot it and it just broke its neck and dropped. And I thought from then on, I thought, okay, it's bow only. And yeah. I don't have anything against rifles, but I just love the challenge of using a bow. Sure. Yeah. That is, you know, there's, I've talked to a few guys that have kind of gone the same route, never, never quite with that same definitive moment. Usually it's because they just uh, had so much fun killing a deer with a bow and they're like, I'm never going back. <laughs> but yours, is, <laughs> yours is kind of from the other direction there, which is okay. That <laughs> yeah. might be, that might be a little, too, a little bit overkill. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go back to a more primitive means there. So no, I like that. That's a good story. Now, did, did you grow up hunting John or did you, come into it later, like a uh, first gen hunter, such as myself. Well, I did grow up hunting. Um, my dad was a big bow hunter. He was in the coast guard. He was a coast guard officer. Oh, very and, cool. Yeah. Became a, a vice admiral, three-star admiral. Wow. But so, we, you know, we traveled around quite a bit, but he was, he loved the outdoors. His grandfather was a, was a hunter. And so he and my mom both shot competitive archery. So as a little bitty kid, I would go out to the archery range and shoot my little bitty kid bow. Man, and, uh, that's cool. and then when I was old enough, I, I took up bow hunting with my dad. And it was, you know, it was this bonding thing with my dad. My dad since passed away. And, mm. but that, that was like, that was our shared experience. And we fished in the summer, we had a boat and we bow hunted in the fall, but then I stopped, I, I stopped, I, you know, got really busy in sure. my career, I work as a, as a pastor and just was so busy, especially during fall. Cause I worked as a campus minister. And so falls are like go time, you know, all the students are coming back to campus sure. and I did for years and years. And, um, and I just started to get back into it when I turned, um, I don't know how old I, like 30 or something. Oh yeah. It was like 28, just started to get back into it. Then I got asked to move to Bangkok, Thailand. Oh so wow! My, my little one-year-old daughter moved over and did mission work in Bangkok for four years. And over there you can't hunt because they believe in reincarnation. And so oh. like you might be great grandfather or something. You know? Oh man. Who's now a deer. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh no. Yeah. I like to tell stories about hunting in my sermons and stuff. I couldn't do any of that. Because they're like they considered it like a horrible sin. So I didn't get to hunt for all those years. And so then I came back uh, from over in Asia and I got really into it and made up for lost time. So I've just been, you know, going hard for the last couple decades. Wow. That's a, that's an awesome story. How, uh, how it's kind of taken you all over the world. And even when you couldn't do it, you kind of just fueled the fire for when you could again, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And, uh, I like that, uh, you know, bonding time that you had with your dad and, and even your mom, it sounds like to some extent with the, the shooting and, and, uh, did your mom hunt at all? Or was it that just, uh, your dad that was into the hunting? You know, she went with him sometimes, but really that wasn't her cup of tea. She was an incredible sure. shot. I mean, she was actually better in archery than my dad was, but they had trophies 
you know, all over the house and stuff like that. Man, she was really cool. good, but she did it, you know, to be with my dad. They just, you know, had a neat partnership, but you know, I didn't have any sons. I have two daughters and I got them into archery, like through youth camps and stuff. I used to do uh archery. I set up like archery camps at our, like our church camps. I set up an archery thing and, and so the kids love that. And I just loved introducing people, you know, first generation people to archery. And it mm. was interesting how people, there were so many people that weren't into any other sports, but they loved archery. And so we get, you know, the goths would come on over and <laughs> black coats and holding that bow. And they didn't want to play volleyball or softball, but man, they loved archery. And, and it was, I, just, I loved having that that tool to connect with people. And then even in the ministry, I have organized an in, I've organized uh, like uh, hunts we call boar brothers, where I get a bunch of people that have never hunted, get them to borrow a bow or buy a bow, get them ready. And then we go on a hog hunt. And uh, we've done that, I think like 13 years wow. and uh, with a bunch of different people. So I love introducing people to archery. I just, I just figure, man, I want to do that. I want to pass it on. My daughters loved archery, but didn't ever get into hunting. And sure. so I just love to pass it on to the next generation. No, that's, that's a uh, very admirable thing to do. I think, you know, to take, for someone to take the time, the, the patience that that, that takes to see somebody through picking up a, a new skilled practice you know there's and there and there's there's some there's some risk there when you're teaching somebody how to shoot a bow too you know there's a there's a <laughs> super fast uh, projectile with a you know i'm sure a target point on it but but still you you, you uh uh you know gets you a little nervous i'm sure but taking the time to to struggle through that with somebody and and uh give them those tips and like you said give them an activity that can now be enjoyed by them when they don't really have much else that they, uh, you know, really have interest in pursuing. So, and man, that's my hats off to you for being willing to do that. And, uh, if my, if my co-host, he's sick right now, he, he has no voice, which you kind of need for a, po for a podcast, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> right, right, but but uh, he he is all about uh, the mentorship side of of hunting as well, and and he's uh, definitely taken some new hunters under his wing, and of course that's kind of the whole point of first gen hunters to to help people new to it to to get into it. So that's a uh, a huge word of praise from our end here for for doing that, and and just a big thank you for being willing to uh, um, help the hunting community get better and. Uh, you know, I think that that's really important that we all take a page from that book and, and be willing to to, do, to help others out with, with those same things. So, you know, a, a, another thing that uh, I, I wanted to bring up that, and we talked about this a little bit, so I, I know I'm not catching you off guard here, but um, one of the things that I think is a turnoff to, there, well, I shouldn't even say one of the things, there's lots of things within hunting that I think are, can be a turnoff to people who are not yet into hunting because they don't, they, they only see that issue presented to them from one context. And that context is from the anti hunting, you know, point of view. And, and, um, one of the things that I noticed in, in your intro and also just in some of the content you have on your channel is, 
you've done some hunting, uh, not just a ton of diverse hunting experience here in North America, which, you know, we are, <laughs> we are blessed with what we have to hunt here in North America. And we're, and we're blessed to be in a country that has that. I, I mean, we, I think we could say it, a freedom to be able to hunt, you know, when you compare what we're yeah. allowed, what we're allowed to do to a lot of other countries out there, you just mentioned one Thailand, you know, it doesn't matter how much you want to hunt you're not going hunting. And uh, so we, we do have a lot of freedom here in that way. So diverse game and, and places to hunt them and the ability to hunt them freely. But I noticed that you've also done some hunting in other countries and that's where, for whatever reason, the anti-hunting community really latches onto. And I think so into a, to an extent that people who maybe actually even have some some interest in hunting themselves, they look at some of these things and they stay away. And, and some of those things would be um, any kind of mention of the word trophy hunting, mm. um, hunting in other countries. I think bow hunting can be a real um hurdle for some people uh they they especially somebody who's okay with hunting overall they look at bow hunting and they say wow you have such a bigger chance of of wounding an animal and uh you know making an animal suffer you know there it seems like if you're going to justify hunting you should be hunting in the most efficient and effective way possible and another mm. thing that kind of gets people riled up, or maybe not riled up, but just makes them question if if hunting really is something they should look into, is when people start hunting in other countries. And uh, specifically, hunting some of the those uh, species that are uh, quite charismatic over in Africa. You know, uh, talking um, people that go on lion hunts or... Uh, hunters that will hunt um, giraffes or uh, wildebeest or or zebras or something like that. You know, people see that and they they get this this feeling of is that okay? Is that is that you know somehow that's different than shooting a deer in Iowa or or uh, bagging a pheasant in in nebraska or something you know what i mean there's like this mm. this mental hurdle that we encounter another one uh, that i just thought of that i wanted to mention we've talked about before in the show people who hunt on uh, uh game farms you know so so uh for instance you could like uh, go hunt pheasants out of season because they're essentially livestock that uh that you know the the game the the game farm owns and they allow you to pay to come in and shoot you know five pheasants or something like that some people really have a problem with that too and mm. i would i would argue this first of all everybody is welcome to their own opinion on the matter and mm. and um as long as you can think things through and look at the whole situation and defend your opinion 
you know, I think that's, that's totally fine. You know, the, the, it goes back to, I don't know if you've ever heard the argument where someone's like, I have a big problem with hunting, but they still eat cheeseburgers and pork chops and, yeah. and brats and, and stuff like that. It's like, well, oh, okay. So you, you're okay with somebody else doing your killing for you and uh, enjoying, enjoying the meat. Um, but, but uh, you won't, you, you have a problem with me doing that for myself and, and facing that reality myself. You know, that's obviously to me that, that, that person's point of view there has a flaw, but if somebody yeah. is maybe a vegetarian and they say, you know what, I think hunting's wrong. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe you got a point if you're, if you're gonna, if you're going to, uh, uh, sit there and make your argument, at least you, uh, at least you're, con- you have the, the conviction to stick to your own point of view. But, but, um, so my point is, I understand that people can have different opinions here and different opinions that, that are well-reasoned and, and have good reasons behind them. But what I have found as I get older, and especially as I've been around hunting more, that when you look at some of these things and uh, you really examine them, the whole, the whole situation, you step back and look at everything involved, you realize, wow, that, you know, that does make a lot of sense that that person would do that. Uh, another big one, hunting over bait, you know, we're coming out of kind of the thick of bear season here. And a lot of people have problems with people hunting black bears over bait. You know, they think, Oh, it's not uh, spot and stock. Then it's not hunting. And, but yet they have no idea what all goes into that and how hard it would be to how impossible it would be to locate a, a black bear in a, you know, a place like Northern Minnesota or something like that, where there's so much timber mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Yeah. But I have found the same thing to be true with, with, uh, game preserves. I have not hunted one myself, but there are some very valid reasons for someone. I know our, our normal co-host, Brandon, he has hunted pheasants on a game preserve out in Delaware because they don't have pheasants in Delaware otherwise. And, Mm. uh, some people use them to get practice for their bird dogs. You know, some people use them for, for outings like, uh, you just talked about, you know, where you're trying to get, get some people who've never hunted before, get them some experience. And, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of good reasoning that goes into that as well. But when it comes to African hunting, I think the biggest thing people need to think about here is the fact that, yes, these animals have been featured in Disney movies since we were little kids. We've, you know, we, we've had them on posters for Noah's Ark in our bedrooms as little kids. <clears throat> we've, you know, there's there's been so much wrapped around and then when you mix in some of the negative publicity you know remember when um what was that lion's name cecil the lion cecil yeah yeah Yeah, people see what went on with with cecil the lion and you want to throw everything out the window that has to do with that type of hunting and i just don't think that that's a prudent way to handle things you know I, i don't think that that's that's really a wise way to to view any kind of thing that that you there might be two sides to yeah i think that's what happens is i i can understand people feeling that way based on the data points that they have in their life and based on the information that they've been exposed to you know they sure. have the little stuffed animals and they see the cartoons and you know the zebras are talking and dancing and stuff like that and they look so cool and they're snuggly is that little beanie beanie baby thing and so, you know, based on all that, and then like you said, the 
the bad media uh, from some, you know, some things, I think people are really misinformed. And I think they, they also look at poaching and mm. illegal poachers yeah. and see the negative impact that they have on Africa. And a lot of times people lump them into the category of hunters. And so they put it all together and just conclude hunting is bad. Right. And, and it's the thought of, you know, just hurting an animal and being excited when you do it, you know, you're, you're excited. Woohoo, I got one. And they're like, wow, right. you're cheating the death. I can understand from all those data points how people would, would come to that conclusion. But what they're not exposed to a lot of times are all the other data points for things like conservation or the true nature of these animals. And that's what happens over in Africa is that the nations that have outlawed hunting their animals are almost extinct. There's some nations where certain species are completely extinct and that they became extinct after they stopped hunting. They made hunting illegal. And hmm. the reason is that, that there's a few reasons. One is that poaching is so prevalent over there that people come in and there's certain species that can make a lot of money, you know, from the bones or the horns or things like right. that over in China and other places so these poachers come in and the people, you know, the, the, the local people will get paid big money for killing these animals. So they, and, and they, they hire government people to like go fight the poachers, but there's just too much land and too many poachers. And so the poachers can wipe out a herd. Well, by legalizing hunting, what they do is they, they uh, charge a fee to get a license for a certain species. And that fee goes to the government and a portion of it goes to the local towns, the mm. local government, and to the people. And so what they're doing is they're, they're putting a monetary value for the people on licensed hunters. Yeah. So then when the poachers come in, they're like, hey, we don't get anything from you poachers, but we get, we get stuff. We get funding from the hunters who come in in a licensed way. So then the locals turn against the poachers. And so they actually protect the, the, the animals from the poachers. Whereas if no hunting, then there's no incentive for the locals to stop the poachers and the poachers just wipe out all the herds. Hmm. But the areas that allow hunting, there's an incentive to the locals to prevent the poaching. And so there, and with a license, there's a controlled number of animals that are taken and harvested in order to protect the herd. You know, herds can get too populated, and when they get too populated, they get too close to one another, they congregate too much, and then disease spreads, and that can wipe out the whole herd. But there's a healthy number. And so the money for licenses goes into the, to the biologists to research what is the best way to preserve the health of the herd and the numbers of the herd. And by selective harvesting of certain species at certain times of year with certain maturity levels, by regulating that, they can actually keep the herd flourishing more so than it would if there was no hunting at all. And yeah. certainly way more so than if there's poaching. So the, the, the nations like South Africa that legalize hunting and have licenses for hunting, well, the animals just flourish over there. And the locals uh, typically get the meat. You know, when you harvest something over there, you're not going to be able to bring the meat back to America. And I love the meat. I, you know, I like the organic meat, but you give it to the locals. And so 
again, they benefit. Like every time somebody comes in and shoots one of their animals, they get a monetary return, but then they also get the meat. And so just, I think it's like all good. And the herd is protected uh, in the, the overall health of the herd. Of course, that one animal you just harvested, he wasn't protected. Okay? Right. He died. But, but the herd as a whole is protected. So the people that, you know, are, are animal lovers, quote unquote, and, and most people don't understand that hunters are typically animal lovers too, oh, yeah. but that, that, you know, the emotional animal lovers that are like, you know, all hunting is bad. They're actually causing more damage to animals and hurting the animal herds and the animal populations way more so than the hunters. The hunters are actually promoting it with all their license dollars and the funding to biologists and the fish and game departments all over the world. It, it just, they're able to manage the herd. And, you know, a lot of that money for the hunting licenses also goes into the anti-poaching units. Yeah. So the government used the money to stop the poaching. So it's, it's like, ex- I understand why people feel that way, but they're honestly exactly wrong. They're, they're in, their motives are good, but their information is wanting. And so their conclusions are erroneous and they don't understand that. Yeah, I think that that's very well said. And again, it goes back to the fact that we only look at the, the coin from one side. There's, there's, uh, there's two sides to every story, and um, <laughs> that's the side nobody ever considers because, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can prey on people's emotions and get them to a point where they don't want to hear the other side of the story, unfortunately. And, and uh, so it's kind of gotten a bad rap. And, you know, I had a few things to add, too, that, that I think um, people should consider as well. And you really mentioned probably my biggest argument, which is the conservation considerations in other countries. A lot of times we, we get so wrapped up in what's happening here which is understandable, you know, it's what most directly affects us. And we know we're well-versed in all the conservation issues that go on on our continent, but why can there not be other conservation issues going on in another continent? You know what I mean? Mm. It, it just, yeah. it, it, it makes no sense to, to be so limited in our perspective like that. And one thing you mentioned there that people will probably be like, well, how can you say that? that these populations would, would be worse if, if, um, you know, hunters weren't around to, to hunt them. And if you, if you said, if you said to me, okay, I'm going to leave everything as it once was, you know, long before, before humans were spread out all over the the planet, manipulating and developing the landscape and, uh, you know, basically leaving everything untouched, then yeah, you might be able to make an argument that hunters, um, you know, having no hunters would be okay because everything was left in its original balance for these species. But everything has changed so much in every country, even even countries that we view as largely undeveloped, like some some African countries or some, you know, Middle Eastern countries or or even, you know, countries far north in in uh, like Siberia or something like that or or um you know, in the middle of of total wilderness and like Mongolia or something. But the, the, the way we have in the 21st century been able to, to um, alter things that go on on our planet 
it, nothing is nothing is original anymore. And so mm-hmm. there's there's you know whether it be pollution, whether it be um, uh, you know people can uh, talk about climate change, uh, whether it be uh, uh, poaching like you mentioned, or or um, you know invasive species are a huge one. You know there's all these different considerations that have altered how things happen now for these species, and so hunting is a very effective very helpful tool when done so with the right science and the right science comes from the right funding, which, you know, a lot of people don't like to hear this. A lot of that comes from hunters buying licenses and, uh, you know, paying guides and, and those guides paying taxes and, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a, a lot of truth there to be said. And plus, you know, if, if you aren't okay with, uh, with African hunting and you are a uh, big fan of Teddy Roosevelt. Well, guess what? Teddy Roosevelt, he uh, enjoyed doing a little African hunting and uh, mm-hmm. actually, actually quite a bit of it. And um, uh, there's also, uh, you know, a lot of the major sporting goods stores that you probably enjoy shopping at, you know, you look around, you might you'll probably find some uh, African taxidermy somewhere. <laughs> At least in some of them, so um, there's there's ways that you're probably actually already okay with it, and um, uh, plenty of reason if you aren't to reconsider it and make sure that your your point of view. I'm not saying it's wrong, um, but make sure you're fully educated on it and looking at it from every angle as you approach any of these controversial sides of hunting that we mentioned this. Well, that was kind of long and drawn out, John. <laughs> <laughs> That's good though. It's good, good stuff. To talk about. Yeah, we got to, you know, if we, if we ignore all the hard stuff, eventually it comes back in a way that we don't want to see it, I think. So it's, it is good mm-hmm. to, to talk about. All right, everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode with Mr. John Lusk of Lusk Archery Adventures. Uh, Really an interesting episode, kind of a different episode here, talking about this idea of testing different types of gear. Uh, We we dove into a little bit of the controversial conversation on hunting in other countries and uh, how that could be perceived sometimes. I just really enjoyed talking with John. He's a great guy, great hunter, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, does some really cool stuff with his uh, his YouTube channel on, on how he uh, demonstrates the quality of different archery gear. But we're going to actually go to a guy who was not able to make it for the episode, but has loads of wisdom himself. And he's going to talk about something that is quite timely right now. If you're chopping at the bit to be doing something that's going to help you out with hunting coming this fall. And that is our favorite host, Mr. Brandon (laughs) Martin of the hunt fish life. Brandon, what do you got for us tonight? Well, you know what we're, you know, if, if you guys are like Kent and I, you know, you're, you're, you know, you've got that countdown, meter going with how many days are left until hunting season you know i I know for myself you know fishing and and that type of thing has always been you know wonderful enjoyment you know incredible but 
ultimately it's something to pass the time until you get back into hunting season. So, and the cool thing about hunting is that preparation and everything never stops. One of the key tips that I'll give today is for that summer setup for how you can start inventorying your deer population as they're growing. You know, of course, June, July, August, key grow time, you know, in terms of antlers and all that. And so it's great to be able to, to get pictures of them, see what's going on. And so one thing that I really like to do what I really recommend is June, you know, mid-June is a great time, mid-June to early July, great time to go get a mineral site established. Um, most places, most most reading, you know, is going to recommend um, one mineral site for about 80 acres of property. Um, and so roughly speaking, you know, kind of keep that in mind. For a larger piece, you might do two. For a smaller piece, you might do one. Um, but what you, 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 a lot of different products, you know, they've got <clears throat> Whitetail Institute, you know, 30 odd six, um, uh, Trophy Rock, you know, two of the ones that I've used very successfully. And you know, <clears throat> what I like to do is I like to combine the rock and the, the broken down minerals. So what I'll do is I'll take a rock out, you clear the soil out, take a rock out and then also take the broken down mineral and then spread it around the rock, rake it into the soil real well. Um, you know, you're going to, you know, ideally you're going to put this in an area where it, you're not planning to hunt. You know, you don't, you don't typically set up mineral sites for purposes of hunting over them in the months to come. Really, you want to set them up in more remote sites or areas where you're not planning to hunt right over. You want that to be a comfortable area for the deer. Not only is this going to uh, be advantageous for the deer as they're growing antlers, the protein, the mineral supplements and things like that, you're also going to get these great pictures. You know, one thing that we've sprung into this year is utilizing Wi-Fi trail cams. We started with it last year, but now we're kind of going full-fledged into it. For the guys that can do that, do it. For the guys who can't, the benefit to a mineral site is, you know, you don't have to, I mean, it's the summertime. You don't have to check this thing, you know, every every couple of days, every week. You know, mineral sites, standard mineral sites, if you're setting up a fair amount of mineral uh, substance, are going to last you about six to seven weeks. So if you can't get out there with a Wi-Fi cam, set it up, you know, in six weeks, go back to replenish it. That's when you can check it. You know, you're not... You're not in any timeline right now in terms of having to check it. So give yourself that window. If you can get the Wi-Fi cam set up, do it. I mean, it's already paying dividends for us. So would encourage doing that side of things. So, you know, try to set up at least one mineral site on your property this summer. Um, entry, of course, is key. I mean, when you're going in there, act like you're you're hunting. You know, take all those scent precautions that we've talked about. Um, and then the, the, the fewer the times you can access that, especially during the summer where scent can be put out very easily. We're all sweating a lot. It's a kind of a rough time of year with that. The less you can enter those woods, the better. And then um, just really try to be, you know, refreshing those sites every six weeks or so. Mineral sites will typically stay very active through September. So, I mean, it's it's good if you can get those refreshed two or three times over the span of time from June through September, it'll keep that, you know, an advantageous spot and it'll keep deer funneling into your property. Once again, do not put it in an area where you plan to hunt directly over, you know, plan to hunt off that area, you're going to continue to funnel deer into the property and give yourself opportunity, especially come early season. So just a couple tandem tips as you're preparing, trying to get inventory, um, trying to promote antler development, trying to promote, um, you know, deer patterning your property, things like that, all those good things on that preparatory side of things as we head towards hunting season. That's an excellent tip. A lot of that stuff that I've kind of had to... (laughs) 
<laughs> figure out the hard way, Brandon just gave yeah, me a good sure. little uh, veteran crash course there that could save you some of the years of toil and uh, uh, mess ups and and uh, things yes. that that could actually, in a way, hurt you down the road. Mm-hmm. And you you know when you're new to it, you don't even necessarily know that it's that it's done that. But yeah, yeah. Great, great information there for sure. Thank you, Brandon. All right, and with that, we're going to go ahead and get back to our interview here with Mr. John Lusk of Lusk Archery Adventures. So with all of this hunting experience, John, what has been your favorite hunt that you have done so far? Oh, man, that's a good question. Ooh, and that's like hard to narrow down. I, you know, I'm kind of like an in the moment guy. And so whatever I'm doing is like, this is the best. <laughs> right, right. I really feel that way. You know, if I go out to dinner, I'm like, this is the best salad I've ever had. You know, <laughs> so hunting is that way. I'm just a passionate guy. But as I look back, I mean, there were some, I've had some really cool highlights. Like one was shooting a 300 inch elk you know, Pope and Young, way Pope and Young, you know, record book elk in Colorado, public land, DIY, just me and two young ministers that went back there with me bow hunting in this remote drainage, like eight miles back. I mean, that was like, it was the dream. And then that, that story got put into uh, Eastman's bow hunting journal. That's awesome. And that big elk is on my wall and was in my freezer. I mean, it was just, that was, man, that was just incredible. And then, um, and then I got to hunt, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Rocky mountain, what do they call it? Like I'm just drawing a blank. Oh, Rocky mountain goat. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I got to hunt those and they're a really hard tag to draw. Actually that drawing a tag is harder than getting, you know, a, a goat down itself, but but man, I mean, to get to hunt those, wow, it like I shot one at 12,000 feet, 13,000 oh, feet of elevation. Me and one of my buddies, you know, just climbed these mountains. And it was with a bow. It was during rifle season. I could have used a rifle, but I wanted to do it with my bow. And so I got that done. And I mean, that was just I, what an accomplishment. I mean, there I am standing on top of the mountain and getting this beautiful animal and i mean the goat tasted so good i had no idea that they were so tasty but awesome beautiful and tasty yeah so you know when i can have an experience like that that i've worked really hard for and trained really hard for and persevered through some tough stuff and then you get it done oh man that's just that's that's the best that's what i love about it i love the preparation and then, you know, the execution, gosh, it just makes all that preparation worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. The, the food tastes better when you work harder for it. I think that's probably yeah, a, a good way of, of summing it up, but no, that is, that is really cool. Let me say one other thing. So this last year I got to fulfill a dream. I, I always had a dream of going on a, a dangerous game safari in Africa. So when I was sure. a little kid, my dad always talked about that. Son, one day we're going to go to Africa. I remember finding this dollar on the ground at a fair, really like a little fair. And I go, Dad, I found a dollar. And he said, save it for Africa. And I'm like, all right. You know? <laughs> and, you know, we never did end up going together. And, 
you oh, know, he, he, you know, he passed away. Sorry but to hear that. I, I, I was able to go over there and got to hunt Cape Buffalo last year with my bow and arrow, one arrow dropped this 1800 pound Buffalo. And Ooh. man, that was just like this lifelong dream. I always wanted to do that. And so that was a cool accomplishment. So those things, I mean, the little things, you know, getting a, I got my biggest white tail last fall here in Iowa. That was, you know, that was a highlight. I just got, just got a couple turkeys with my bow last month here in Iowa. That was a highlight, but, but probably the, the elk, the, uh, the goat, and the uh, and the Cape Buffalo, those those are probably at the top. Man, that is that is awesome. That's some again some really diverse uh, <laughs> some really diverse hunts there that you have listed among those. So that's that's really cool. So you got any uh, major like like huge hunts planned for twenty twenty one? I I um, I'm going to Alaska for a DIY caribou hunt. Oh in- man. And I've always wanted to do that. And I have these friends that I met on a bear hunt up in, in Northern Alberta many years ago. And man, we hit it off. And it turned out this guy, this his family, a, a dad and his son, they had a TV show that was really popular on Outdoor Channel. It, it won all these awards. It's called Young Wild. And the, okay. the guy, the young kid, his name is Lincoln Tapp, his dad's Jim, but he was aspiring to be the youngest person ever to complete the super slam, to take all 29 North American big game species with a bow and arrow. Wow. And he started when he was 11. And I met him when he was 12. Now he's, I think he just turned 19 and he's got two animals to go. To reach yeah. He's got, I think it's like one caribou subspecies and then a polar bear. And then, uh, and then he's got it. And so, yeah, it's, so I got I've become best friends with them, and we've been on the show together. They had me do like some emceeing stuff and interview stuff on the show, and uh, and so we're going on this caribou hunt together, and in in August, and that's going to be really fun. So I've got that plan, and then of course whitetail here in Iowa, and then next year I'm either going to do a bison hunt or probably what I really want to do is a, a moose hunt. I really, mm. really want to get a, a moose. So I just love the the different. I like the different, not just the different trophies, but the different experiences. I'm, I just, I love different experiences. And I, you know, you mentioned like some people, you know, will high fence hunt or some people, you know, hunt over bait and everybody has different views and that's cool. I don't like belittle any of them because each one is its own experience. Right. And, you know, you may not want to do it, again, or it may not be an experience you want, but I just like to do different things. Like I, I shot a, a mountain lion in Colorado with my bow a couple of years ago and they use dogs to chase the mountain lions. They track them. Sure. Well, on one hand, you look and you go, okay, you know, you treat them and then you shoot it in a tree. What's the sport in that? Well, I mean, you got to make the shot. And I mean, there's a big old mountain lion. <laughs> right. You know, but watching the dogs, track this mountain lion on tracks in the snow that are two days old and seeing the dogs work with each other, you know, using one animal to get another animal. I mean, that's just like, what an experience. I mean, it was just, it was this incredible experience. And so I, I just, I like that and different, you know, different animals allow for different terrains, different adventures, different experiences. And I'm just all about trying different stuff like that. 
Yeah, that is, that is, uh, really cool. And, uh, um, I agree, you know, it's, it's, uh, all, it's not just wrapped up in the shot, you know, how difficult was the shot? Okay. You know, that was a really challenging shot. So that was a really ethical hunt. You know, <laughs> it, like you said, it's the, the whole experience leading up to that moment, you know, the, the being able to follow those dogs, those dogs running some pretty rough country following those cats and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's so much more to it than just that last couple of seconds where you uh, let the arrow go. And, and uh, yeah, and you know, it's, it's funny, like some high fence hunting, you know, they, in a preserve, like, man, those animals are hunted hard. And yeah, that's I mean, true. they can be much more challenging than you go, you know, way out west and you go up in Alaska or British Columbia or something, and you can get to where these sheep have never seen a human. Yeah. And so there's, you know, you go, it's hard to get there, but once you're there, it's, it's not as difficult when, you know, to get close to um, certain yeah. species in an area like that. And so you go, well, which, you know, one's free range, one's not, but that doesn't mean that one's necessarily harder or easier than the other. They're just different. So I don't like to compare them. I just like to experience different things. Right. Right. Well, and, and there's different, there's such a wide variety, even within those, those high fence hunts too. I learned that a few years ago. I had, I had a, uh, and again, I've never done it myself. I don't know if I ever will someday or not, uh, but I agree with you. You know, if, if somebody wants to do that and it's legal, you know, have at and and if you enjoy it that's great um but but um i had kind of previously before i had gotten educated on it i just kind of balled it all up into one pile and thought eh, i don't really i don't really have any interest in that at all well then i was listening to a podcast where a guy was invited on one of these and he kind of had the attitude of uh, i don't think there's any anything valid about this but i'll go check it out and uh, afterwards, his his uh, point was, look, some of these, sure, there's probably some some game farms out there where it is shooting fish in a bucket situation, but there's plenty that aren't. And and uh, some of these game preserves, he was saying, are thousands of acres. You know, you go down to like Texas. You know, there's there's some of these these. Yeah, it's high fence, but these animals are on thousands of acres. So, you know, they can they can still live a pretty wild life, <laughs> even if they are inside oh, those yeah. enclosures. Yeah, but, totally wild. But um, yeah. so it just go, but the, the the whole reason I bring it up is it just goes to show that there are some some of these aspects of hunting that are so much. There's so much more to it than what meets the eye and what gets uh gets spread around but man that caribou hunt that you're doing though that's a that's a that's a bucket list thing for me is to hunt caribou some sometime up in alaska now with a bow though so i mean that's that's some open ground right that you're going to be hunting yeah yeah and you know the time we're going we're going up above fairbanks on the hall road like there's a you know there's this pipeline road that you can go on and um, five miles on each side of it is for bow hunting only. And okay. so it's kind of cool that they have that, but, but the time of year we're going they're they're, they're down low and it's really barren country, like really open. So that's the challenge is the stock. It's not like, you know, there's hills and rocks and things to crawl around later in the season. They get up into the higher country 
where there's there's you know that kind of terrain and then it's easier to get close and put a stock on them so we're going early when it's pretty challenging so yeah i've, I've been doing some long range shooting just to get used to that cuz like my buddy got one last year he shot at 72 yards and that was he felt really fortunate to get that close which you know with a bow that's an easy shot especially if you have some wind or something like that sure yeah that is that would be that would be a trip of a lifetime for sure and definitely one with with a ton of challenge but man when you're hunting with uh your friends that you were talking about <laughs> that kid's away only two away from uh completing a super slam I, i'm sure he'll uh he'll uh, be a, a good resource for knowing how to get on a, get on an animal in a <laughs> yeah. challenging place that's <laughs> that's pretty yeah, that's pretty really impressive that's really impressive. Well, let's uh, let's kind of transition now to uh, talk a little bit about Lusk Archery Adventures. So, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have your YouTube channel where you you know people that they they are listening to this. Make sure you head over there. You can see some of these hunts. I'm I'm over here uh, greedily hoping that you will put the caribou hunt up there on. Uh... Oh yeah, I want to. I hope. Well, wow. I, I just love the scenery up there and, and, uh, I just love caribou. I think they're such beautiful animals, underappreciated animals, really. Um, once found, uh, in many of our lower 48 States and not really anymore. I don't know. Are there any populations of caribou still in the lower 48 or are they all in uh boy? Not that I know of. That's a good question though, but I, I don't, there's no seasons. Sure. You know, it's like elk, you know, elk used to be in, every, I think, every state except Florida in the yeah. past. And elk was a plains game. You know, they were, they were, they were like bison. But then yeah. they, they, you know, their habitat, you know, got invaded by people and they got pushed up in the mountains. They learned to survive in the mountains and the woodlands and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned people earlier and how much we've changed and affected animal herds and populations and so forth. So elk, we've done that. Caribou, I, you know, I don't know as much about caribou. I just know there's a lot of them in Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> Locals, they <laughs> shoot five, you know, wow. but, uh, but non-residents can just get one. But, you know, the herds are just so prolific as long as you're, you know, you're in them, but they migrate. You got to time it just right to be in them. Yeah. And they can cover a lot of ground fast from what I hear too, when they're on the move. Yeah. So no, that is, that is a, a dream hunt of mine for sure to get up there and, and hunt some caribou. The meat just seems like it would be so incredible on those things. You know, uh, maybe it's because they're walking around in a uh, constant refrigerator and uh, <laughs> just seems extra fresh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah so i hope to have that on my channel as well i have about i think i have almost 200 videos on my channel and about about a third maybe like 60 or so are my bow hunts and then the rest are uh gear testing and mm -hmm. and some like how to like or some educational things like understanding broadhead flight I have I have a video on that to just help people understand how broadheads sure. fly and why they fly different than field points and so forth. But but most of my videos are testing broadheads on my channel. Yeah, and uh, that's that's definitely something I want to get into tonight because I think that beyond just you know what we talked about in the introduction of this show, hey, what would happen if beyond that people get to especially new hunters, especially me. You get online, you get to the bow shop, 
or wherever, you know, a, a big box sporting goods store or something, and you see this entire aisle of options mm. for broadheads. And, uh, you know, you find your one buddy, oh, I always have shot blah, 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 and they work great for me. Mm. Okay, I'll buy those. And then you go and use them and, <laughs> you know, something happens that you're not too pleased with or whatever. Maybe those are practicing or actually hunting. And then you're back to the drawing board and you're like, all right, well, what is a better thing? Or do I just stick with this thing that I don't really like? So all that to say, John, how many different types of broadheads do you think you have tested through, uh, through the time that you've been doing uh, the YouTube channel? You know, total, I think I have 130 broadhead test videos wow. and many of those have multiple broadheads in them. right right so i mean i've i've tested a few hundred over over the years i've just been doing this for about the last i don't know what like five years something like that okay. and the way it started is I, I mean i was really intrigued i'm an engineer and I, i'm really intrigued by broadhead design and flight and you know, what's going to be the best for this setup, especially because I change species, you know, what about for elk and what about for whitetail? What about for javelina? You know, things like that. So I started researching a lot about it, but then I won this one broadhead on archery talk, this online forum. I won a broadhead, a really expensive broadhead. I got one. And so I, um, I did a video of kind of testing that because it was a, a new design and new material and stuff. And then I really liked it. I'm like, well, this is really good. And I was looking at YouTube and I was just starting to monetize some of my videos, you know, with little ads, they put ads sure. on there. And I mean, a little bit of money, but, but with bow hunting, I thought, you know, in the future, they're probably going to not promote bow hunting. Like you just kind of, you read the writing on the wall. And I thought, if I really right. want to have this channel be successful, I better get into something that's going to last and so that's when I started that I did that video on that one broadhead. And I thought, well, this would be good to kind of do this, do more broadhead tests. Right. So that'll last forever. And so I've been doing that ever since. And like last year I did, I think I did 58 different videos. That was, my goal was one a week and I went way over that. Maybe it was 60 something. And then this year, my goal is one a week as well. And, and so I just, I love testing all the different heads. I love the different designs. I love the innovations. Somebody tries this or they try to do that. And sometimes they're complete failures. I love that too. Like I love yeah. find something that's a flop and I'm not, um, I don't have any kind of like a commitment to just using one broadhead or you can't say anything bad about that broadhead. Like I don't, I don't do that. Sure. And so you know, I just want to be really objective and put the different broadheads through consistent tests. That's what I've come to now is I use consistent tests for all the different broadheads I test so that then they get scored in each of these areas. And then you can compare broadhead to broadhead by comparing the scores of, of how they do in the different mediums and forth. And being an engineer, like you were mentioning earlier, it really helped me to understand the value of consistency in mm -hmm. testing. I've seen other videos where people would shoot them at, at animals, but you go, well, that's great. I mean, because you are hunting, but you know, this animal may be different than that animal. And right. you may shoot an animal, you may shoot the same animal with in, in the exact same spot or like same species, exact same spot. 
but say it was like through the lungs and and one the the lungs were deflated because he had just exhaled and the other the lungs were inflated he just yeah. inhaled you get a totally different blood trail totally different result so like you said most people's way of picking a broadhead is how good is that company at marketing and how much how much money do they put into marketing like rage i mean they put like 95% of what you pay for a pack goes into marketing. So you think about how much is really being spent on that broadhead. And I'm not saying they can't get the job done. They certainly can. I've taken animals with them, but, but your money, most of it is going into the promotions and the Hmm. sponsorships. So you go in to buy one and you see this in the magazine, one full page in a bow hunting magazine, $50,000. That's what it costs for a full page ad. And so you see, you know, rage like this and you're like, wow, those are awesome. But you're you're just listening to the marketing or you listen to your friend, like you said, oh, this would work for me. Whatever people killed their biggest thing with, that's what they swear by. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know, true. Wrong. That's their data point. But I wanted to have more data points beyond the marketing propaganda and beyond this guy says this, this guy says this. Let's just test them through a series of set series of tests for flight penetration, durability, sharpness, edge retention, and let's just see how they perform. And then let the people decide what they want to use. Hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, and I've seen tests like that too, where, where it's not a even comparison, you know, they, they're, they have too many variables in their test and you're just sitting there thinking that the whole time. And, and so, yeah, I, I, and I mentioned that earlier, I just really appreciate how you do that with your test. Now, uh, I also wanted to, to highlight there too. So I assume you get a lot of these, these broadheads donated to you by these companies, uh, because it's good, it's good publicity for them to, to see their products tested. Is that, is that accurate? Um, it's not as much as you would think. Like I'd say probably a third are donated by the company, maybe a quarter. Um, because what happens is some companies, they just, you know, they're so big, they're not even going to respond to me in a request. Like I won't say names, but there's just, you know, there's a number of big ones. Then the smaller ones, like the mom and pop ones, a lot of times they will donate them because they want the free publicity. Um, you know, for a pack of broadheads, they can give me, you know, I can do a video and they've spread the word to 20,000 people that year from yeah. that video. So they did that for the cost of their cost of a broadhead. It's probably like 10 bucks. And so right. that's good investment right. for them versus, you know, putting an ad in the paper and people don't really trust that. So a lot of them do that. So about, but I get probably a quarter that way. And then probably a quarter are donated by viewers where viewers oh, just, because wow. I, I ask them, I go, Hey, if you want me to test a certain head, send me a pack. And boy, that's been great. Cause then people send me, you know, I've gotten all kinds of huh. heads. A guy the other day said, Hey, what's one head that you'd like to test and haven't been able to. I told him it showed up in the mail like three days later. I'm like, Thank well, that's you. awesome. That's yeah, really cool. So I really like doing that. Huh, then, I'm glad I asked. The, yeah. Then maybe the other half I, I buy and I try not to buy them. Like I'm, I was looking at, okay, how much am I making in this, you know, from the ads and stuff like that? And how much am I buying? And like, I I was losing money. I was buying so many broadheads. So now I try not to buy them. But this year I probably bought, I don't know, maybe 
I mean, I bought some expensive ones. I, I maybe I've spent a few hundred dollars on okay. buying broadheads, but this year I've gotten better at getting donations from viewers and some from the companies. That's good. But some companies don't want me to do it because they're afraid of how their how their broadhead's going to perform. And I yeah. tell them if I'm going to show it how it does, and so they see my test and they're like, yeah, we're not going to donate any damn. <laughs> so sometimes when they do that, I'll buy that one. I'm like, okay, then I'm buying it. And I'm going to show them what happened. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just, yeah. But, you know, there's all kinds of different motives and different, you know, marketing plans and decisions companies have to make. So, you know, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked that because that's, that, that was a question that, that I really had, but it's also a, probably an assumption too. I mean, it was on my part, but I like what you said in there earlier. The reason I brought it up, you, you aren't accepting anything that you're not allowed to tell the truth on, which I think is, is really important uh, for, for everyone to understand that when, when you're watching these tests that are on your channel, it's the real deal. And uh, it's, it's information you can take to the bank. And uh, I think that that's, that's another thing along with uh, you know, the consistency of your tests, I think is a, is another thing that makes your, your gear test so valuable. So, you know, another question I had for you, are you, um, when, when somebody does donate to you, do you, do you feel like in your own, this is going to come from you, your own rules that you set up for yourself, your own parameters of your test, I suppose. Do you have to like talk yourself out of having favorites or, you know, just so you don't add mm -hmm. bias to your experiment? Or uh, do you definitely have a, f a handful of favorites that you like? Okay, so that's a really good question. When a company, when a viewer donates ahead, you know, I, I, don't, I don't give it a second thought. You know, I'm right. just going to shoot it into whatever. But when a company with a really caring guy you know, he'll talk to me about the head, the design, because I always ask him questions. Sure. And this is like his baby. You know, this is his company. In the in my earlier years of testing, I I was pretty harsh on some of the broadheads. And I looked back on that and I thought, man, you know, I, I need to be factual. I don't need to be mean. And I, you know, I need to be critical in a good way and not critical in a bad way. Sure. And so I, I really made a change a few years ago that I thought, okay, I can be honest without being derogatory and mean. And so I, I shifted. So I do, I do want to respect whatever people have done. And I, I feel for them at the same time, I'm going to show what happens to the broadhead. Yeah. And, and so yeah, I feel there's times I'll feel like, oh man, it's, this didn't do good. <laughs> but, and I'll feel that. But I, you know, I, uh, you know, the, the object, objectivity and the test is what that's what it's all about. So I got to show it. Now, on the other hand, there's some heads that I've tested that I go, oh my gosh, this thing is like the bomb. I mean, this is amazing. And so when I have a head like that, like, that's, those are the ones that make it into my quiver. And then I test them in the field. Like things that, the ones I really like, I'll test in the field. And I'll typically, I don't know, in a year, maybe take 15 or 20 animals mm. per year. And so I get to test a lot of heads. But I do have favorites. And not favorites from just a, a bias standpoint, just the opposite. Favorites because I've shot them into concrete and steel plate and 
animals like in bone and all these different things and they're really good and so then i you know i i use them a lot and i talk about them a lot and then if there's some like that that really impressed me and if they have like a direct to consumer plan like some of them are put in big stores you know big box stores but some have a direct to consumer plan you can only buy them through their website right. then i started going to the ones that i really i really believe in this head i've used it in the field and in the lab and i say hey can i get a discount code for my viewers and i've approached them and say you know you give a discount so i can offer people say this is really a good head i endorse this head and you can get 10% off if you use this code. And then I get a little residual from that as well. So I get a little commission anytime a head is sold from that. So in some ways you go, well, that's kind of a bias, but but it's not because I'm, I'm very open about it. I go, okay, here's the discount code. And right. it's only heads that have tested really well. Right. And I want to give them to the viewer for a good price. And I want to get a discount for it. So I get to use my name and and give people a really good price for it and then i get a little bit that i can use to buy more broadheads and you know put back into the channel or you know whatever like that yeah no i think i think you're so spot I, do that. On there. I think there's like three different maybe two maybe it's, uh, no three there's three different uh companies that i do that with Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that that's a, a good way to explain it. You don't have a favorite till after it's been vetted. <laughs> and so it has to survive. It has to survive the, uh, the abuse before it gets to, uh, oh, yeah. it and gets then I, keep, I keep testing it. And if there's something else that comes along, I'll show it. Like if something else, you know, I, there's, there's a problem with every broadhead and try, try to point that out. But, you know, I'm constantly trying to discover the next best thing and, you know, I'll gladly give it top spot in my quiver. I mean, I don't care. I want the best broadhead. Yeah. Hunts. I mean, that's why I'm doing it. Yeah. I like that. I think that's, I think that's good. You know, one, one of those, those uh, tests that you did that was um, super interesting to me <laughs> was, uh, and, and so uh, the listeners know that, that I have a, you know, a certain level of partnership, I guess you could say with, with, um, Camo Fire and Black Ovis, uh, two companies I really like. And and um, uh, specifically at Camo Fire, I've seen, you know, up on their daily deals a few times, these, and those of you listening in, you're going to think I'm crazy here for a second, plastic broadheads by, <laughs> made by, and it's kind of ironic too, because it's made by a, a fairly high-end uh, you know, like a well-known knife making company, uh, cold steel. They, and they, uh, <laughs> they made some plastic broadheads <laughs> and, uh, you, they look wicked. I mean, the, yeah, ser the, the serrations on those things, you know, uh, they look like they could, they could, uh, you know, put a hurting on you, but they, <laughs> they, um, certainly uh they're plastic <laughs> you know you just can't like get over that little hurdle but you went ahead and you tested them which was like scratching an itch because when i the first time i saw those things i was like can those things actually you know hold up to anything would they be lethal and uh you ran them through your test and i thought it was awesome how was that was that kind of a fun test for you 
that was fun. Like that's one that I bought. I mean, I saw them and I go, okay, I just got to test this thing. Like, yeah, you're right. I'm curious like you. And they're like a dollar a piece, you know, or a dollar 20 or something yeah. a piece. Whereas, you know, other broadheads, I mean, I have some that cost over a hundred dollars for one broadhead. Man. And so like, you know, they range in price considerably. And so I thought, I was just curious. And, you know, they definitely had their limitations, but they also, they did, they had their, you know, their strengths. And so I thought it was really an interesting test. I love doing stuff like that. Like sometimes I'll just go on Amazon and find some super cheap, no name head. And I'm like, is this any good? (laughs) It costs like, you know, $5, you know, a broadhead or something. And sometimes it's, it's junk. And sometimes they're amazing. I mean, I've found some amazing broadheads that are just so inexpensive. So I like doing kind of no name stuff like that too. Budget broadheads. But yeah, the cheap shot was really, it was a fun one to test. I mean, I shot it into some fun things that, can of soda and then apple but then i you know it also shot it into a half inch layer of mdf and saw how it held up there or didn't hold up and yeah it would do a great job on like a rabbit or something a raccoon things like that which is what it's designed for small game yeah yeah i thought that was i thought that one was super interesting and uh just again highlighted the fun that you have on your show which is which is cool too so you know after testing all of these things and i just thought of an idea maybe you've already got this video i haven't i certainly haven't seen all 200 of your videos i've seen uh, a good a good amount of them but but uh not the full 200 so maybe you've already done this but you know one that would be uh pretty useful especially to first gen hunters who have such a uh mountain of gear to sift through as they're getting into it maybe you could do like a uh, budget uh video you know you just pool all these these uh products that you found that have actually you know been dirt cheap but have uh been still that something that you would be okay with uh taking out hunting um i think that'd be that'd be really helpful but even beyond that i'm sure you have through testing as you said hundreds of different types of broadheads through the years I'm sure you have in your mind, if, if I, um, you know, had like five broadheads sitting under a, uh, uh, you know, a blanket on a table. And then, you know, I said, I'm going to give you, you know, 30 seconds to choose one of these five broadheads. When I pull this blanket off these broadheads, uh, you're going to have 30 seconds to examine these broadheads and choose which one you think will, will perform the best. You would probably be looking for some specific traits about those broadheads that you've just observed through all these tests after test after test and what makes a good broadhead. So what are some of those things through all your testing that you have found to make a broadhead that will be effective for hunting will hold up to things like bone and um you know it'll it'll fly in a a predictable you know nice on target pattern you know everything that goes into making you know holds a good edge even after impact that kind of thing what what is it about the best broadheads what are some characteristics that you've noticed in them that's a good question um yeah. And, you know, let me just say a little, you know, kind of parenthetically, a little qualifier. The best broadhead, it, you know, people ask sometimes, like, what, what's your favorite one? 
it varies based on what I'm hunting and how far sure. the shot is. And, you know, what is it? A, you know, Cape Buffalo? Well, it's going to be a different head than if it's a javelina, you know? So it's, it's hard to, there's no one that's perfect for all that. But the things that I'm going to look for typically, like immediately, is what are the materials? Like what's mm. it made out of? And the, the more it's all steel, the better. And, okay. and then, you know, titanium is also really good. Um, if it's going to be aluminum, then I prefer it to be like a 7075, like which is the strongest, one of the strongest aluminums uh, okay. that's made. There's, you know, there's different levels of aluminum even. And they're all called, you know, like, what do they call it? Like aircraft yeah, aluminum. Aircraft <laughs> all, aluminum yeah. It's kind of like, you know, <laughs> calling plastic space age polymer. And I mean, you know, aluminum can be okay, but, but I mean, I look for the quality of materials and then I look for the, the profile. Like if it's really long, it's not going to fly as good. The more surface area, the less, the more it's going to be affected by wind affected by any little variation in your bow tune. So the sure. more compact it is and the lower the profile, the, the better it's going to fly. And if it's too long, then it's going to be, it could be weak. If it hits at an angle, it could bend. And so I prefer like shorter, low profile in flight and low profile helps in penetration as well. So the materials, the, the profile like that, how much surface area is there? I want it to be small, but still have a big cut. And that's another thing I personally look for is I want there to be like, my goal is to get a pass through. Okay. Give right. myself the best chance I can get at getting two holes because for a blood trail, I just want maximum blood trail. I want to ethically take that animal down. I don't want it to get away if at all possible. And so I, I want two holes, but I want to get, the biggest cut possible while still getting a pass through. Sure. And so that's like where I think, okay, I could get this little broadhead and man, that's going to penetrate really deeply. I go, but yeah, but it penetrates too easily. I could have used a wider cut and still got a, a pass through and cut a lot more tissue while I'm doing it. So I also look at the cut size and think, okay, what's going to give me a good durability and good penetration, good flight, but also have a big enough cut. Now the cut size can be so big that it's terrible flight and terrible penetration. So I look to try to balance all of those things out. And then just the structural integrity, like how's the geometric design of it? Is it the kind of thing that you go, okay, this can handle an impact. Like this is going to hold up. I always do a concrete test now that I shoot the, the broadhead into concrete just because people like to see it and it's fun to see what happens in a zero penetration test. You're really testing the structural integrity of the head. Yeah, and sometimes, definitely. you know, people go, oh, we don't hunt, you know, concrete. I know you don't hunt concrete, but I've had heads hold up well to concrete and then bend terribly when they hit a femur. I mean, like you hit a, a bone, a big, heavy joint at a weird angle that puts a lot more strain on the broadhead than concrete right. does. So, you know, I just, I just want to, you know, test it and see how well it does. So I look at the, the geometric design. It, is it going to be stout enough to handle a hard impact? Those are some of the things that I look at. Sure. No, that's, uh, that's, that's really helpful information. And, and, uh, I think I probably know what you're going to say on this. If you're not, if, if you're okay with, uh, <laughs> putting yourself out there on the, uh, yeah. mo the most, uh, um, what's the hotly debated issue within <laughs> within the the broadhead realm fixed blade versus mechanical what do you think 
caribou, elk, moose, antelope, coos deer, trophy whitetails, oryx, sika deer, doll sheep, and mule deer. What do all these critters have in common besides their delicious back straps? They can't all be hunted in the same state, meaning that at least one of these game species will require you to purchase a non-resident hunting license and tag in order to hunt them. Now the rules of the tag application game are wildly diverse from state to state. And if you are looking to complete a bucket list hunt, you are going to want some help to make sure you are setting yourself up for the best opportunity possible. And that's where tag application and hunt planning agent Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts can really help you out. If you've listened to any of the episodes we've had here on the First Gen Hunter podcast with our buddy Alex, then you know there isn't anyone who cares more about the details of tag acquisition than him. Alex not only will help you through the hoops of the tag application process, but he will also help you plan the details of your trip that will get you where you need to be in order to have your best chance at filling your tag. And he is offering a 10% discount for First Gen Hunter podcast listeners such as yourself. All you have to do is purchase a service through his website, alexgruen.com. That's A-L-E-X-G-R-U-I-N.com and use the code FIRSTGEN10 at checkout. F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N, the number 10, and you will receive 10% off the hunt of your lifetime. Yeah, you know, in the past, I totally shied away from mechanicals because, you know, I want something that's foolproof. And you'd always hear stories of this mechanical didn't open or it broke or something like that. And then as I started to test them more and more, I saw, wow, the reliability of mechanicals has increased tremendously. And the advantage that you get with mechanicals is one, you're able to get a huge cut while having an incredible flight and you can't do that with a fixed blade if you get that big of a cut it's not going to fly well and Mm. so you can have that that combination of you know if you're shooting in a crosswind and you're taking an 80 yard shot or a quick shot even at a whitetail in the woods you know it comes chasing a doe in the rut you grab your bow and you're nervous as all get out you know and you're trying to weave it through leaves man your forgiveness your form is off I mean, a mechanical is really nice like that because they will fly, most of them will fly like a field point exactly. And so, and you can get a really big cut with it. But one thing I don't like about mechanicals is their durability. And a lot of times they just, I mean, there's, there's rage. I mean, almost every test I've done on a rage, and I've done a lot, those blades are going to bend horribly or break before any other heads that I test. Mm. Like I, I just recently did a durability test of all these different mechanicals. And Rage is always one of the ones that breaks first. That doesn't mean it can't kill an animal. Of course it can. Anything with a good place shot is going to kill an animal. And shot placement is by far the biggest factor in harvesting an animal, way more important than the broadhead itself. Um, so it can get the job done. But there's just better choices. I mean, I found, I started testing the severs, and I saw this one sever into a concrete block three times and it was still going oh, strong. Oh man. I mean, just, I mean, it's a mechanical. 
And I shot it through 22 gauge steel plate five times and it stayed intact. Like every other mechanical, the blades break off on the, in the first shot in, in steel plate. Some have made it through two, but this one made it, you know, the Sever 1.5 made it through five shots of steel plate. So I go, if I can shoot that mechanical through five, through steel plate five times and into concrete three plus, it could have kept going times. Then I know I, that that head is going to hold up well. Well, yeah. I catch on animals every time it comes out looking brand new. Every head, I mean, no matter what it hits. So that's one that I can take a, a mechanical and say I am one hundred percent confident in this mechanical. Huh. It's going to fly that's, like a steel plane. That is it's such valuable. Terrible. That is such valuable information. Holy smokes! That is yeah. That changed my view, especially their one point five inch one because it's a small enough cut that it's still going to penetrate really well. And so, you know, so I like that. However, you know, there is something still about a fixed blade that certain situations you go, okay, like, like last week I, I had some, I had a sever and I had tooth of the arrow, which is a really stout, all machined out of one chunk of steel fixed blade. Wow. So I have both in my quip and I do this often. So I shot a hog and with the sever, I hit him a little back, made a really nice hole though. I'm trailing him in the dark into this really thick thicket. And there he is standing up in front of me, facing me at 15 yards, his eyes glowing like, like he's about to charge. Oh. And I'm like, shoot. Well, I had a tooth of the arrow loaded into my, my uh, knock, loaded in my arrow and knock just for this situation that I knew if I have to do a headshot, I want this solid chunk of steel. <laughs> and so I did. I put the pin right between his eyes and pinwheeled him. And I mean, the nocturnal, you know, the lighted knock is like thrashing around. Okay. Oh, I mean, it man. Cool. It's like in the dark. It's like, but I mean, he died before he hit the ground. I mean, it was just the, the nerves, you know, he was thrashing around, but it just went right through his skull. And I mean, I got the skull. I did a, doing a European mount on it right now. And it's just, I just launched that video tonight, as a matter of fact. But it, it just, oh, I'm definitely going to be watching that. that right is... I did another one that was even better a couple of years ago, and that's my most popular video. It's got like two and a half million views because I shot a hog at 20 yards right between the eyes with another fixed blade broadhead, and it just dropped. It went stiff immediately, oh, and it's really good footage. So to do that, you know, and get good footage is kind of hard. So anyway, yeah, I have a couple of videos like that, but, but that's where I want a really quality fixed blade. So, you know, there's a, there's a place for both. And like, if I were going after a moose, like caribou, I'm taking the sever, no doubt, because I may have a hundred yard shot and I know that thing is going to fly really well and penetrate really well. But like, if I'm going after a moose in Alaska, that big of an animal then it's going to be a fixed blade, probably be an iron wheel, single bevel with bleeders, like mm. something like that. Like, so, you know, I, I gauge it based on what I'm going to hunt and there's a place for mechanicals for sure. And there's a place for fixed, but I do have one thing that I, that I do want to advise people against. Like sometimes people use a mechanical cause their bow's not well tuned and their bow's not well tuned, but you can, you can put on a fixed blade and you're hitting the target. Like, a foot to the right at, at 20 yards. And you're like, how can that be? Something's wrong with the broadhead. Well, nothing's wrong with the broadhead. It's just your bow's out of tune. 
you could shoot a field point and you're going to hit it right in the dead center. You shoot a mechanical, you hit it dead center. So people will just use a mechanical so that they don't have to tune their bow. Well, that's a mistake because there's still an arrow flight problem and you're just masking it a little bit by shooting a mechanical, but you're not going to get as good a penetration as if you took your bow to a shop and you got it tuned properly. And if, if it's tuned properly, you can shoot any, any fixed blade really well. Um, and then even if you use mechanicals, they're going to penetrate a lot better because you're going to get really straight arrow flight. Mm, that's a good, that's a really important tip there, especially for new hunters. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. And that's, you know, I gotta be honest that I have not been bow hunting very long. This, in fact, this will only be like my second full season of bow hunting, but I went with fixed blades last year and it was for that reason that you just mentioned. It was to compensate for what I didn't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, uh, it's definitely on my list to, uh, get my bow, uh, checked over by somebody much more experienced this year before I, I, uh, make my decision on my whole arrow and, and, uh, broadhead setup going into this, uh, hunting season. But that makes, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, another mistake sometimes young hunters make is they'll just, you know, they'll just buy whatever arrow at the, you know, at Shields or something like that, or Bass Pro, which is fine. If I, you know, if I were on a budget and I'm going, okay, I just need to get, you know, some arrows inexpensively, I, that's where I'd go. I'd probably go to Shields and just say, hey, can you help me out? I mean, they have pretty knowledgeable staff and you can get, you know, you can get some decent arrows at a good price, but I really prefer having a high FOC. And that's like, it means front of center. And that just means where the weight of the arrow, it's lopsided toward the front end. Like if you were to throw sure. a dart and it didn't have a, a weighted tip, it's just going to kind of like flop. But you, mm. you put that, you know, that little heavy tip on the front of a dart and it flies like a dart, you know, through right. the phrase. and that's because of its high FOC. You know, it's just, it's all the weight is in the front. So I think it's really important with an arrow to have either a heavier broadhead or a heavier insert and a heavier broadhead to get a heavier tip at the front, that's going to penetrate better and it's going to fly better. It's going to resist wind better. It just, it makes a huge difference to have a greater FOC. And most people don't think of that. They get a hundred grain broadhead. They just screw it into whatever they, they have. And, and, and that's okay. That can work, but it'll work a lot better if you have a higher FOC and if your arrow is heavy enough. I used to shoot, you know, like what, like 350 grain arrow, and, and I mean, that can get the job done, but making sure or trying to get a heavier one, like up over 400, but that can make a big difference in the momentum. Mm. It's momentum that, that affects penetration and momentum is conserved when the mass is greater. Right. And so you want to, you know, having a heavier arrow is really going to help. So I do try to advise people, don't just get the cheapest, lightest thing. You can get something inexpensive, but make sure you get some good FOC and you get some weight to it so that it's going to fly and penetrate better. Mm, yeah, that's, that's super helpful advice there. Again, for somebody who's brand new to, to archery, uh, be taking some notes on this one because <laughs> these are questions that I think most new people uh, in archery have as they step up to the, the, uh, you know, aisles and aisles of stuff they can buy 
and and yeah, uh, there's a there's a video I just put out earlier this year that's been really popular. It's called Understanding Broadhead Flight. I mentioned that earlier, but if people like really want a crash course and just help me understand broadhead selection and flight and you know what's the difference and all this kind of stuff, you know, mechanical versus fixed and penetration. It's just in one video. I go through all the factors and I think it's, I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Sounds like it. I, I definitely want to check that out for myself and, and I'll pass that around to, uh, you know what I might, with your permission, John, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here on the podcast, but if you wouldn't mind, I would, I'd like to share that video on my, uh, maybe on my social media uh, channels, just so, uh, some of my, some yeah, of my listeners can, uh, love that. you know, get that little bit of education there. I think that'd be really helpful. So, uh, you know, as we uh, wrap this one up, John, how can people find your channel on YouTube? Yeah. If you just type in Lusk, it'll probably come up with just Lusk, but Lusk Archery Adventures. And it just type it into YouTube in the search and it'll come up. And I mean, I've had, I have like over 8 million views and 21,000 subscribers and it's just growing all the time. Right. Yeah, so it's awesome. There's, it's easy to find it. Or if you, if you're one and then you can see the playlists, I have like broadhead test playlist or gear test. I test a lot of bows too. gear test playlist, um, hunts, you know, bow hunt playlist. Like you can go through and see all the different playlists that I have. And sometimes people wonder, and I get questions regularly, like several a week. Hey, have you ever tested this broadhead? Have you tested that broadhead? And I, I can answer to people and I do like on Instagram, I'm active on Instagram and on Facebook and a bunch of different online forums, archery forums. But if you just type in the name of the broadhead in YouTube in the search bar and Lusk, if I've tested it, it'll come right up. Like mm. if you put in rage, Lusk, like rage, broadhead, Lusk, or, you know, tooth of the arrow, Lusk, or, you know, whatever broadhead and, and my name, it, it'll come up if, if I've tested it. So then, you know, you can see that first before, before people ask me, because <laughs> yeah. a lot of them I've already tested and it just, it helps. So, you know, so if, if you've like narrowed it down, maybe you go, well, I'm thinking of using one of these three heads it's a good resource. Just go to YouTube and just type in the name of those heads and Lusk and see if I've tested them. And if I have, then hopefully the video will be helpful. Yeah. So yeah, that's how you find me um, on Facebook, Lusk Archery Adventures, Instagram, Lusk Archery Adventures, YouTube, Lusk Archery Adventures. Awesome. Yeah. Make sure everyone gets to those pages, follows them, subscribes to the YouTube channel and uh, use it like uh, John just advised. Save yourself some time from from uh, picking around, you know, get on those playlists and, and you know, I guess in a sense, search effectively. Kind of like, you know, I saw something the other day that there should be a uh, a spot on people's resume to, to put down if there's a skilled Googler, you know. So you got to be kind of a, sk <laughs> a skilled uh, searcher there on YouTube where you uh, you uh, type it in right and uh, get that information you need. And, of course, I'll share all those links in uh, the show notes on this episode so uh, everyone can access them there as well. John, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm super excited to see how your caribou hunt uh, goes this year. And, of course, uh, you know, we – we're privileged to live in the, I like to call it the whitetail state here in, in Iowa, 
And, yeah. Uh, hope you uh, <laughs> hope you get a big bruiser down here in the the home front. So best of luck to you. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. Uh, and uh, to everyone listening, be sure you uh, get on John's channel. Subscribe to him, like I said, follow him in all of his places. Be sure, you, even though Brandon can't be here tonight, he's under the weather. He's sick. Don't forget about him. Go to thehuntfishlife.com. Check out their social media pages and see what all is up with them with all their, you know, hoity-toity saltwater fishing out there on the East Coast and um, all their food plot prep going into this uh, coming deer season there in the sleeper buck state of Delaware. And when you're mm-hmm. done checking out these guys, make sure you head over to, hopefully it's like your your homepage. When you pull up the internet, it just takes you there. Firstgenhunter.com. Of course, you can find me on Instagram, Go Wild, Facebook. And uh, I still have some content to get up on the old YouTube channel, but obviously the podcast is the, the main source of information for you here. It's super busy right now. You guys know I'm moving. And uh, so it's uh, taking up a lot of my time, but hopefully we'll have some more uh, YouTube content up there soon as well. But thank you again for tuning in. We love you, and make sure that you take care and take someone hunting. Hunting.